please turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. That's Mark chapter 1, 21 to 34. Uh, please follow along as I read from the English Standard Version. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately... There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is the word of God. Hello. Hi. Uh, Thank you, Linda, uh, for reading the word. And how good is it uh, to sing? Yeah? I don't know know about you guys. I got quite emotional. Um, It's so nice to sing. I hope we've grown to appreciate the things that we kind of took for granted. You know, for a while, we couldn't even meet in person. And at least for me, it made me appreciate just being in one place together as a church. And hopefully this has also increased your appreciation of just being able to sing to God. Um, We're going to continue our series through the Gospel of Mark. We're at week four. And today, I want to talk about the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I recently listened to a podcast, and um, I keep talking about podcasts, but I listened to a podcast, and it, it kind of freaked me out. Uh, it scared me to go into surgery and put my life into the hands of a doctor. And I'm not saying anything bad about doctors. We have some doctors here. You're great. But this podcast was, is called uh, Dr. Death. I don't know if you've heard about it. Um, in this podcast, they basically, um, in season one and season two, they look at two different doctors who uh, basically abuse their power. Uh, to, uh, you know, gain money or to keep uh, doing surgeries. But in the process, they leave like a string of, you know, people who are ruined, uh, physically maimed and hurt and paralyzed. And they basically make a mess of people's lives um, through the position that they have. And so in season one, it's a, a neurosurgeon. And he's a, people would come to him with spinal problems to be made better. But in the process, they'd leave being made worse. Right, due to his incompetence and indifference in nearly every single case. Right, every person, nearly every person who'd come to him would leave in a worse condition. Right, 31 patients were left seriously injured because of his incompetence. And two patients died, even though like, it was quite a normal, easy procedure. Right, one of the doctor's closest friends underwent a routine neck surgery, and he woke up permanently paralyzed. And so you're listening about, you know, the doctors like this, and how do they manage to, you know, continue to be doctors and continue to do surgery? 
Right, in the second season, it's about a different doctor. He's a hematologist and oncologist. I don't, I don't really know what that is, but uh, he takes care of people with cancer. He had a reputation of being the best, right? He's not a nobody. People would refer people and say, oh, this doctor is the best. But eventually it was found out that he's guilty of healthcare fraud, money laundering, conspiracy to pay and receive kickbacks. And basically he was prescribing chemotherapy to patients who didn't need it or patients who didn't even have cancer. He would sit down with patients who didn't have cancer and he'd know this and he'd say, you have cancer. And you have to go undergo chemotherapy so that he would get money. Right? One sad example was that there was a patient who was at, was at the end of their life. And so they should have just spent their time at home with friends and family. But instead, they were told to keep coming back to receive you know, treatment so that they could get as much money out of that person right, until they passed away. Right, so this freaked me out, and you know, um, I'm not saying that doctors are bad. I'm sure this is a very rare occurrence, but it made me realize how important it is to entrust our lives into the right hands, right? That whoever's hands I'm going to entrust my life into must have the right qualifications, or they must have proven themselves to be worthy because I'm going to give my life to them, and you know, it's up to them at that point. Right? They have to be the right person. Now, when we come to Jesus in the Bible, he invites us in a much more significant way to entrust our lives into his hands completely. Right? Jesus desires to be king over every part of our lives, our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, our speech. He says, give me your life. And so the question is, what are Jesus' qualifications? Who is he? What has he accomplished that you and I should give our lives into his hands? In a way, he has to prove himself. Can we trust him? Is he the real deal? Can he back up and prove the things that he claims? If I'm going to give my life to him, I need to know that he has the right qualifications. And so in our passage today, Mark Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 34, We're going to see the magnitude of his authority. We're going to see exactly the kind of qualifications that he has. And he kind of surpasses anyone that we know. He has the right, I'm going to say, to be king. And he is the one that we should entrust our lives to. We're going to see in this passage that Jesus has authority over our minds, authority over the spiritual, and authority over the body. And so let's look at that, number one. Authority over the mind. When I say Jesus has authority over the mind, I mean that Jesus should be the one that we submit our minds to. He should determine what we believe, what we say is right and wrong, what we meditate on. It's his words that should consume our minds, and we should submit our minds to him. In verse 21, we read that they went into Capernaum. Capernaum's going to end up being like a base of operations for Jesus as he's in Galilee. He's going to go around and preach and keep coming back to this place. And it says immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. Right? Teaching is very important in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to come back to that. Verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The Jewish people grew up 
being taught. They were very used to sitting at the foot of a rabbi or a scribe or someone and learning from them. Right? They would have spent week after week learning from someone, but this time was nothing like all the other times they had sat down to learn from someone. Because what they heard was, was different. Right? It, was, it says astonishing. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were shocked by the teaching of Jesus. Because Jesus taught them, as it says, as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The scribes were people who had authority from the, the forefathers, right? the fathers of Judaism. They taught what they had learned from you know, the people who had gone before them, who had learned what had gone before them. Right? They were basically passing on tradition. They'd open up the Old Testament and they'd teach what they had heard when they were young. That's where their authority came from. But Jesus was different. His authority came not from the fathers of Judaism, but from the Father, right, in heaven. Jesus was speaking not tradition, but he was speaking something new. He was giving new revelation. He wasn't just talking about what other people had talked about. He's speaking on behalf of God about what God is doing now, about the kingdom, about the gospel. And so as people are hearing, they're like, wow, this is like nothing I've ever heard before. This is new. Uh, this is talking about God working in this moment, about salvation, about grace. It was not the words of man or the wisdom of man. It was the words of God and the wisdom of God. And they knew even from the very first time that they sat down to hear from Jesus that he had authority, it says. That this was a person that they should listen to and submit to. The Bible tells us Jesus is the one who should have authority over our minds because it tells us that Jesus is the giver of truth. When Jesus speaks, it is true. When Jesus says, this is wrong, it is true. When Jesus says, this is holy, it is true. When Jesus says, this is the way you should live, it is true and it is right. Whatever Jesus says overrides everything else we've heard in our lives. It is true. And that is why he should have authority over what goes around in our minds. Jesus says no less about himself. John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. Right? No one comes to the Father except through me. Everything Jesus said was true. In fact, if you look at what Jesus says as he goes around and does ministry, he repeats this phrase. He says, truly I say to you. Right? He says it all the time, truly I say to you. And what he's saying is what I'm saying is true, but also what I'm saying I have experienced. I know this to be true. And he says that over and over again. Because everything Jesus tells us is always true. You know, this week I jumped on Google and I looked up how to find joy. And on the front page of the results, right, this is the results that kind of came up. 12 best ways to find joy. How to find joy. Four simple secrets. 11 simple ways to find joy. 12 ways to find joy. How to find joy. Seven simple secrets. How to find joy. 13 steps with pictures. <laughs> Which of these links should we read and say, well, this is the truth? Is it the one that gives us seven steps or four? The simple secrets or the simple ways? 
right? The one without pictures or with pictures, right? The one with pictures is it's kind of funny. They just had people smiling <laughs> and doing different things and like kind of very inspirational. Which of these many, many results, right? The hundreds, the thousands of results that you're going to find to, you know, how to find joy. Will we submit our minds to and say that's the one that is true? Right? We live in a world where we desire to know answers, but the problem is we're inundated with a whole list of, you know, sources of quote-unquote truth. This is true. No, this is true. This is true. And piercing through it all, the Bible says, is the words of Jesus. And he is the giver of truth. He is the one who teaches us what joy is, where to find our hope, where to find purpose in life, to understand what is good and evil, to have a proper perspective of ourselves, to find eternal life, how to raise children, how to have good relationships. Find it in the words of Christ. That's what the Bible says. You want truth, but there's so much out there. Go to the Bible. Find it in Jesus. He is the authority over our minds. The question for all of us is, will we believe that Jesus is the source of truth? Will we allow him to be the king over our minds, our thoughts, our beliefs, what we you know, shove in there and meditate on? Right, the Bible says he must be king. He and he alone is the giver of truth. And when it comes to eternal truth, the things that will shape your life in eternal ways, you must go to Jesus. Right? There is no other way to eternal life. There is no other religion. There is no other book. There is no other prophet. There is no other teacher. It is Jesus alone. Go to him. And when we submit our lives to Jesus, for the Christians here, it means that he must determine what is right and wrong. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we want to obey. What feels most convenient to us, he must determine what is true. And our desires must submit to him. He must determine how we live. He must determine how we understand the world and sin and God and our relationship with him. He must be king over our minds. This is where transformation begins. We start here with our minds. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewal of your mind. We begin with our minds submitting to Christ and allowing him to tell us what is true, what is right. And we say, yes, you are king over my mind. Renew that and then life transformation will come afterwards. This is where we begin. And Mark tells us Jesus is the authority over the mind. Second, we see Jesus is authority, has authority over the spirit or the spiritual. Verse 23, it says, Immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, unclean, it doesn't mean unhygienic like bacteria. Uh, it means religious dirtiness, right? A good way to understand it is evil. This man had an evil spirit, a demonic spirit, right? Mark interchanges those words, demon and unclean. And it's interesting that the demon-possessed man or the demon shows up in the synagogue, 
Right? The synagogue's meant to be the place of worship. It's meant to be a place of God. And it indicates the desperateness that the devil and the demons must have felt, that they're going to come into the synagogue to try to battle Jesus. Because right? that, that's what's going on. They know that this is a very important moment. And the demon-possessed man, he says, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And we see two things happen here. The first thing is that we see Jesus' spiritual authority affirmed. Right? His spiritual authority is affirmed by the demons. Even right from the beginning, right, we saw in the previous passage, Jesus is, wrestles with the devil in temptation and he overcomes him. And here, the demon calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Right? He knows his name. He says, I know who you are. And importantly, he says, you are the Holy One of God. They know exactly who he is because they're afraid that he has come to destroy them. I want you to think about that. There's nothing more validating than to have your enemy publicly acknowledge your authority. The demons basically say, you're our enemy, but I'm acknowledging you are powerful. I'm acknowledging you can destroy us. I'm acknowledging you are the Holy One of God. It's like there are two sports teams and they trying to beat each other and they hate each other, but one team is saying good things about the other team. Right? You know that then that other team's good, right? If, if the enemy is saying praises about you. Even the demon acknowledges Jesus' authority. Not only is his authority affirmed, his authority is displayed. Verse 25 to 26 Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. When you imagine what is going on here, it, it's, it's quite astonishing. It's like an MMA fighter, if you watch MMA, go into the octagon. And the ref, I don't know how they begin. He says go or start or, <laughs> I gotta watch enough of MMA. <laughs> it's a violent sport. Um, he says go, and the, the, one of the fighters comes out, and he shouts really loudly at the other guy or the girl, and they just fall down, right, knocked out, without a finger laid on them. Right? If you saw that happen, you say, wow, that person is really powerful. That's what's happening here. Jesus doesn't even lay a finger on the demon. He doesn't need any spells or a scroll or a potion. He doesn't wave his arms around. He simply says a few words. He says, be silent and come out of him. And the devil, the demon comes out of him. That is power. That is spiritual authority. That is nothing like we've seen in the Bible. He just needs to speak and the demons submit to him. It's insane how powerful Jesus is over the spiritual. Jesus is the demon destroyer. The one the Father prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And as we read the rest of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see the power of Jesus over and over again in the spiritual realm. He overcomes temptation, he overcomes the devil, and he is victorious in his life and his death. Now, when we talk about demons and, you know, the spiritual world, uh, for us in the Western world, like for us in Australia, 
it's like, it's, it's hard to understand. Right? It's like, ooh, it's like a bit of um, Harry Potter or something like that. Everything in our lives has to be rational. It has to be empirically evident. It has to be explainable. You know, there was a uh, man named Thomas Jefferson. Do you guys, have you heard of that name? I'm, I'm sure you've heard of that name. He's one of the founding fathers of the United States of America. <laughs> He's the third president of the United States. He was a self-claimed Christian, but he struggled with the spiritual himself. And so what he ended up doing was that he made his own Bible. We call it the Jefferson Bible. He went to the Bible with a razor and glue, and he cut out all of the spiritual and the supernatural things in it. Like he literally cut it up, and he glued it into a new book. He took out the prophecies, demons, exorcism, miracles. He took out the resurrection, because that's a miracle. Right? His Jesus dies, and it just stops there. He had to cut verses in the middle, right? because that's how intertwined the story of the Bible and the spiritual is. And in the end, all he was left was an 84-page document, right? the Jefferson Bible. And maybe you don't do that physically, but I wonder if we do that just in our minds. When we read the Bible, we kind of cut it up and we're like, yeah, I believe that one, but, but not the demons and not the spiritual and not the miracles, etc. You know, we want a Bible and a Jesus that teaches us good morals. But, you know, I don't know about this demon exorcism stuff. But the Bible, we're not even past the first chapter here. It tells us that the world we live in is spiritual, that there are the demonic and the devil. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, it says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. If you are a Christian, our battle is... A part of it is a spiritual battle. It is in a realm that we cannot see with our eyes. Against an enemy that we cannot see with our eyes. It's not the only thing. We don't want, we don't want to make everything spiritual. We don't want to make everything about the devil. But it has to be a part of it. If we are going to allow to ourselves to believe in God, who is a spiritually good person... I think we have to allow ourselves to believe in the devil and the demon. Demons, which are spiritually evil people. They're, they're both spiritual. And if we will allow ourselves to believe in God, right, I think we need to allow ourselves to believe in evil spirits as well. Now, this is kind of opening up a can of worms and a lot of questions that I'm not going to answer today. So keep coming over the next 30 years and maybe we'll answer some of those questions. But I just want to kind of put that there. We need to believe in the spiritual world. That's what the Bible puts before us. We wage war with the demonic. But the second challenge then for us is then to submit our lives to the one who has authority over that world, which is not the devil, it is Jesus. Jesus shows here today that he has absolute power over the demonic. And as believers, who are in union with Christ, right? Because he's helping us, right? We have nothing to be afraid of. We just need to keep going back to him in prayer and in the scriptures, relying on his power and his protection, and we'll be okay. 
And what a comfort it is for us to know that our Lord and Savior has won the war, that he has subdued Satan, and that he can defeat demons. Ephesians chapter 6, right, if you go back to verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Christian is a person who is fighting a spiritual battle. And we put on, it says, this armor that we get from God. But if you read what this armor is made up of, it's simply the things that we get from Jesus. Right? If we put our faith in Jesus, we get these things. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer. These are all things that we get from Jesus. So we come to Jesus, we believe in him, and then we hold on to him. Word, prayer, faith, righteousness, salvation. And that's how we fight the battle. All right, let me just show you a picture. I, I found this randomly on Reddit. I don't know. I don't know who wrote it. I, I drew it. I hope this isn't copyright. Um, can you see that? It's a person kneeling and praying. But in the mirror, it's like it shows you what's going on spiritually. Right? They've got a sword in their hands. Right? They should really be holding the Bible because the Bible is the, the sword. They've got the helmet of salvation, right? They're, they're waging, as they go to pray and read the Bible and they go to cling on to Christ, right? They're going to battle. And there's a hand on their shoulder, which is the hand of Christ, right? Because he's with us, right? He's the one who has authority over the spiritual, right? Whether you believe that or not, the comfort is that Christ has authority in that realm. And third, Jesus has authority over the body, in the next five verses, verse 29 to 34, we're going to see Jesus heal the sick. And he does that in two different scenarios. And I want to point out two things. The first is we see just how complete the love of Christ is. Jesus heals personally and publicly. First, personally, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, right? She's lying down sick. He's some trivia for you. That means Peter is married. Right, that's not, the, not this one. The disciple Peter is married. Right? I don't know if you ever knew that. Like, I, I, I didn't really know it. I found that out. I thought, um, okay. Jesus goes to her home. This is private. He goes to an individual, and he says he lifts her by the hand, and the fever left her. This is just a very intimate picture right, where Jesus just specifically goes to a, a single person to heal them, right, personal. But then we also see him heal publicly. Right? In contrast, it says that the whole city later was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. These two back-to-back healings, it reveals to us the heart of God, the heart of Christ, where he cares about everyone, but he also cares about the, the someone. He cares enough for the world that he's not going to reject whoever comes to him. Whoever comes to him, he'll receive and he'll take care of, but he also cares about the individual person. He's not like the, sorry, he's not like the pastor who, who loves the church, but he, he like doesn't know your name. <laughs> I feel conviction. Um, he's the perfect shepherd. Not only do we see his complete love, we see his complete authority over the body. Just like with the exorcism, the healing is immediate. He comes to Peter's mother-in-law. This time, no words. He just touches her, lifts her up, and the fever leaves her immediately. 
And she's well enough that she's able to serve them, it says. Or it's not a progress, it's just immediate, and that's his authority over the body. And when it says the crowd, I came to him and Jesus healed many who were sick. Many who were sick does not mean he healed many, but not some. It really means he healed a great many. He healed a lot of people. And so all these people came to him and he healed a lot of people. Jesus is a great physician. He's not just the maker of our bodies. He's the sustainer of our bodies and he will be the restorer of our bodies one day. As we continue to read through Mark, we're going to find over and over again, Jesus has authority over the body. He heals many people with a lot of different illnesses in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he, he says something, sometimes he just lifts them up, sometimes he spits on the ground and makes mud. Right? He does it in a whole different ways because it's not about the way he does it. It's not about a specific you know, incantation or something. It's him. He is the healer. He can do it whatever way he wants. He has authority over the body. And incredibly, when Jesus dies on the cross, he will raise himself up from the dead because that is how complete his authority is over the body. He rises up into a new and glorified body that will live forever. All of this to show Jesus has authority over our bodies, over the mind over the spirits, over our bodies. Now, I want to clarify something, and this is going to get a, a little bit into the weeds. It's going to be a little bit confusing. I tried to like, make it as simple as possible. But Jesus didn't come to, come to earth to exercise demons. And he didn't come to earth to heal people. I just want to make that clear. The people Jesus you know, cast the demons out of weren't completely rescued from the devil or demons. This man whose demon was cast out would still be tempted by demons and the devil. He would still fall into sin. Quite possibly, if he didn't believe in Jesus, he would be possessed again. It was temporary. Jesus didn't come to heal people, even though that's a part of what he did, right? That's not the point of why he came. Because whether it's Peter's mother-in-law or the crowds that came to him, they will all grow older. They will grow sick. They will get different illnesses. They will all die. Even Lazarus, who died and was raised from the dead, would go on to live and he would die again. Jesus didn't come for this purpose. These things were means to an end. And the end was that people would see his authority in all these ways and then believe in him. Right? That's what it was about. That they would put their faith in him. Because if people put their faith in Jesus, the complete deliverance and the complete healing will come to them. When Jesus returns again to judge the world, right, on that final day, that is when the complete deliverance and healing will come. That is when the devil destroyer and the Satan slayer will cast the devil and all his demons into hell for all eternity. And he will raise the dead and we will, as believers, be restored in our bodies, perfected bodies that will live forever as his body did. Our minds and our thinking will be, re- will be renewed and we'll understand him and all the things that matter in a perfect way. And on that day, we will spend eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus came so that we'd believe, so we would receive that. 
No matter how much Jesus spent his time exercising demons or healing, he would never have gotten to the whole world in the three years of ministry. But he came to preach, right? We find that in the verses in, in next week's chap- chapter, next week's passage. He came to preach. Because he came to preach, that was the point so that people would believe. That message would then be able to be carried on by his disciples and their disciples to the whole world. Right? He couldn't heal everyone, but the message could spread to everyone. That everyone who believed would get that healing and get that deliverance when he returns. And for us as believers today, that means we may still be tempted by the devil or demons. We may still stumble and fall into sin. We may feel overwhelmed at times by darkness in this present moment. Or we may fall sick. Or we may have have physical ailments that are never healed on this earth. But the good news and the joy and the hope that we have is that one day all these things will be taken care of. That one day he will return. He will get rid of the devil. We will never be tempted again. The presence of sin will be taken out. We will live in a perfect world with him and his people in perfection. And on that day, we will have bodies that will not perish, that will not get sick, that will have no illnesses. Right, forever. That's our hope and joy. That is why Jesus came. So that you and I would see his authority over the mind, the spirit, the body, but not chase present day healings, but chase him and submit our lives to him. In the last year, as we prepared for this church, uh, I was applying for um, support from different organizations to support this church plant. And so I had to uh, send them my resume. And I had to revisit my resume. I hadn't touched my resume for over 10 years because I'd served, you know, at the same church for 10 years. And it's kind of like taking a, it felt like I was getting this old book off the shelf and dusting it off and looking at old pictures. Right? As I looked through my old resume, like I kind of laughed to myself at all the stuff that I tried to fill into that one A4 page to make myself look like good. Because that's what you do on a resume, right? You, you fill it with stuff and you, you don't want it to be like a little bit. You want it to f- look full. And I had like, this is the high school I went to and I worked at Pizza Hut. And you know, like I was trying to stick, not that Pizza Hut's bad, but you know, as an old, like looking back on all the stuff that I tried to do to make myself look good, it was a little bit humorous. This is my list of qualifications, right? That's what a resume is. This is my list of qualifications. This is my list of accomplishments. So entrust to me that job, that task, that team. Here you go. Give that to me. Right? That's what a resume is. And I'd filled it with all this stuff to try to make myself look good. Here in these verses today that we read, we saw Jesus' resume. But not really the whole thing, because we're, again, not even finished with the first chapter. We see a little bit of his resume. We see three dot points. And those dot points are mind-blowing. He has complete authority over the mind. What he taught was astonishing. It's nothing like we've ever heard on this earth from anyone else. He has complete authority over the spirit, the spiritual. The demons submit to him with but mere words. He has complete authority over the body, right? He can heal, but one day he will heal all the believers for eternity. And the question for you and I is, as we look at the qualifications of Jesus, will we entrust, not a job, 
but our lives into his hands? Will we entrust our spirit into his hands? Will we entrust our eternal life into his hands? Has he proven himself trustworthy to you? Right, that is a question. And as you wrestle with that, right, if you're not sure today, keep reading the Bible. Investigate who this Jesus is. Right? Because like I said at the start, you want to entrust your life, your body, your mind, your spirit into the right hands. The Bible says Jesus is the only one who is qualified for you to surrender your whole life into. Would you do that today? Let's close our eyes and let's pray. And as we pray, I want us to wrestle with, you know, who Jesus is displayed as in the verses we looked at. He's not just a person or a teacher or, or a doctor. He's the King of Kings. He's God the Son. He's the Lord of all. And I know that it's a big call to give your life and place it into someone's hands. But Jesus tells us that's exactly what he wants us to do. Not a part of our lives, but all of it. Not just our body, but our mind as well. Not just our mind, but our spiritual life as well. Everything from today and for all eternity, surrender it at my feet. Give it to me and I'll take care of you. I'll teach you what is true. I'll protect you from the enemy. I'll raise you up at the last day in perfected bodies. I will take care of you today and for all eternity. I have the qualifications. I am the one who can take care of you. Will you submit your life into his hands? The incredible thing is that when we do, we will be saved. We will be forgiven of our sins. We will be welcomed into the family of God. That we will have the Holy Spirit living in us. That we will have a perfect relationship with the Father and the Son. That Jesus will always be with us and the Father will never forsake us. That no matter what happens in this life, we can have hope and joy because one day Jesus will return and make everything right. He will make everything perfect in our minds and spirit and our body. And trust your life to Him today. I want you to wrestle with that invitation. I want you to speak to God about your doubts. Just be honest with Him. And if you're not ready today, be driven to the Bible and investigate who this Jesus is. I am convinced He is the only one who is worthy of our lives. He is the only one who has the qualifications to take my whole life. So let's wrestle with that and spend some time in prayer. Let's pray.